you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me today, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be continuing on in our series of messages, We Are Witnesses, a study in the book of Acts. Now, up to this time, things in the early church have looked pretty ideal. I mean, there have been some moments. They've had some persecution, which only made them stronger. They had an attack from within by Ananias and Sapphira, which God dealt in a very powerful way. But now the humanity side starts coming out, and we begin to see there's a little turmoil going on inside the body. People are starting to grumble and complain. Hard to imagine, isn't it? And uh, so as they're doing that, the apostles have an opportunity to address the reason behind the complaint, to better understand an area of ministry that had been overlooked and needed to be addressed if their witness was to remain strong. Luke records the moment for us like this in Acts 6, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy for us to get off track with our priorities. And when we're not living according to your priorities, our lives, our marriages, our families, even our church can begin to show the consequences. And sometimes it takes the hand of God, a movement of the Holy Spirit, and drastic action to get our lives realigned with your priorities. It's no different in life, and it's no different in the ministry. This early church was a good church with good people, but they were getting off track with some of your priorities, and it was beginning to show. And what you did to help them is a lesson and encouragement for all of us if we're going to be effective witnesses for you in the world today. And we thank you for all that you'll show us in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading a piece from Christianity Today by author Philip Yancey, who said, without a doubt, his all-time favorite animal was a duck-billed platypus. Now, if you haven't seen one of these creatures, it's hard to figure out what they really are. Um, the platypus has a flat, rubbery bill, no teeth, webbed feet like a duck, Yet it has a furry body, a beaver-like tail, and nurses its young like a mammal. Now, when you see the whole body view, it's like the thing gets weirder. <laughs> because it walks like a lizard, it lays leathery eggs like a reptile, and the male has venomous hind leg spurs that can strike like a snake. And you look at this thing and you think, what exactly is this? Is it a mammal? Is it a reptile? What is it? 
In fact, this strange animal stymied scientists for years. In fact, the first platypuses that were shipped back to England in 1800 were deemed to be frauds. They didn't believe it was real. And you have to conclude, God had a really good time putting together the platypus. (laughs) It's a combination of so many seemingly incompatible parts. And that's why Philip Yancey says the church is a lot like a duck-billed platypus. When you look at it, it seems to be an incongruous mix of so many incompatible parts into one creature. For example, the church is the body of Christ, a living body made up of people who are meant by God to live together for him as a unique organism. We are the body of Christ. Christ lives in us. We are his presence in the world. Where we are, Jesus is. We are to live to know him and to make him known. But the church is not just an organism. It's an organization. It has a corporate structure. It has personnel. It has buildings. It has programs. It has flow charts. As an, organiz- as an organism, the church must be fed and nurtured and taught and helped to grow, as anybody must. But as an organization, there has to be structure and policies and budgets and procedures and programs. And there's always a tension between the spiritual needs of a body and the physical, material needs of a body, between the organism needs and the organizational needs. If those two get out of balance, the body of Christ begins to suffer and the witness is compromised. For example, if there's too much focus on the spiritual side, people begin to neglect their witness in the world. Oh, we don't care about the poor. Oh, we don't care about what's going on in the world. We don't care about reaching our community. You see, we don't care what's going on outside because we're in here. We're very spiritual. We're getting close to God. We're praying. We're learning the word. We're becoming more like Jesus. And that's what really matters. And they forget that we have been commissioned to engage the world, not to be separate from it. And if things are too materially focused, too body life focused, people can lose their spiritual connection with Christ. And so you can get Christians going around adopting the values of the world being out there doing all things in the name of Christ, supposedly, embracing homosexuality as though it's acceptable, and doing a whole lot of other things because they want to love everybody and not ruffle any feathers, and they just want to be nice. And what happens is they lose their vital connection with Jesus, and they're no longer his body. See, that's why God led the early church to strike such a balance between the two, making both a priority of their ministry. And the need for that balance became glaringly obvious when certain widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Luke put it like this in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now you see, by this time in the fledgling church, it was made up of people from as many as 15 different nations or 15 different regions of the Roman Empire, as well as thousands of local people from the surrounding Jerusalem area. Many of these believers were away from home, cut off from family, and out of work. They had come for the Passover. The Hellenistic Jews, these are Jews that have adopted Greek language and Greek culture because they live in a Greek environment, had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Not only that, 
but a number of these widows had come with their husbands. Many of these Jewish men who had lived in the Greek world felt compelled to come back to Jerusalem where they would live out their last days and where they could die and be buried near the holy city. So as they aged, they came back to the city of Jerusalem. They passed away and were buried, and that left their widows there in the city who had come to Christ with no family, no connections, and nowhere else to look but to the church. So they began to complain. The other Hellenistic Jews were complaining, hey, when you guys are passing out the food allotments for these needy widows, our girls aren't getting anything. Because the Hebraic Jews were watching for their own moms and their own grandmas and taking care of their own widows. And they were not paying attention to the Grecian Jews. On top of that, there's 12 men who have been commissioned by Jesus to lead, to guide, to teach, to help, to minister, and to oversee this massive group of people that's growing every single day. So rather than neglect their responsibilities for the spiritual health of the body, they come up with a solution to help with both ministry priorities. And it tells us in verse 2, so they gathered together all the disciples, and they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they chose those seven men listed there from among themselves, apparently from the Hellenistic side of the Jews, and they gave them the responsibility for the organizational efforts to address these issues. And they, in turn, as the apostles, would give themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Spiritual needs, physical needs, organism, and organization. And every marriage, every family, has to find the balance of these or you'll begin to suffer the consequence. And the same priorities that must be present in every church today are the ministry priorities that God wants for us to maintain an effective witness. Because our witness for God's kingdom, as Luke tells us, can remain strong when we focus on God's ministry priorities. What are those priorities? The ministry of prayer and the word and the ministry of waiting on tables. For a church to remain a strong kingdom witness, there must be a priority given to the ministry of prayer and the word. Here's how Luke put it in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. I noticed about a week or so ago that our lawn in the backyard was dying. And I knew exactly why it was dying. I mean, it was obvious. It was turning brown and prickly and weeds were coming up. And it was dying because it needed food and water. It couldn't keep surviving on the food I gave it a year ago. And it wasn't going to last on the rain that came in the winter and spring because the rains were over. So I knew what it needed. It needed food and it needed water because grass can't grow without food and without water. Well, apparently, a church can't grow without food and water either. Neither can Christians who make up that church. 
Without those things, you eventually begin to wither and die. The food and water that brings life to any person or any church is the word of God and prayer. The church is people living in relationship with God. Now you can have effective organizational programs, you can have great ministries, lots of activity, but you cannot have life without the word of God and prayer. And you can gather together to sing songs and have fun and food and fellowship, but you can't have real life without the word of God and prayer. That's why the apostles, knowing this, knew that one of their ministry priorities had to be to focus on the word of God and prayer. That's why it says in verse 2, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. We will give our attention to prayer. Not that they would be the only ones praying, but they would also be seeing that a ministry of prayer was happening in the church. Because prayer is like the water, the lifeblood of every Christian in every church. I remember once sitting in some meetings with Howard Hendricks, famous professor at Dallas Seminary, author, very popular speaker. He was addressing a group of pastors one time, and he said, guys, I find it interesting that I can announce that I'm going to be speaking on the beast of Revelation, and I will fill a stadium with people coming to hear it. But if I say to those same people, come on Friday night, I'm going to be talking to you about prayer. He said, I show up and you can hear the crickets chirping. (laughs) Prayer is communion with God. It is a living conversation between us and the God who made us. Prayer is where we experience more of God's person, more of God's power, more of God's peace, and more of God's provision. Prayer is where we experience more of God's person. I love God. I love him. And I think many of you do too. But I can confidently tell anybody that if prayer is not vital to you, you don't think much about God. And you don't think much of your relationship with God. Could you imagine me telling my wife that I love her, but I don't ever want to spend time with her? Just to be with her, no matter what we're doing? Prayer is where we experience God's person. David, King David was a praying man. He lived in relationship with God. He prayed, and God revealed more of himself to him. There are so many places where this is demonstrated. I don't even know where to begin, but Psalm 86 is a prayer of David that focuses on their relationship. Listen to how David prayed, Psalm 86. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. 
You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. Your faithfulness, your mercy, your joy, your forgiveness, your love, your glory, your name, and all that you are are mine when I'm praying, he said. My old prof at Multnomah, founder of the school, Dr. Mitchell, one of the founders, used to say all the time, if you've been here before, you've heard me do this, I'm not very good at Scottish brogue, but that's how he used to do it. He would get up in front of the class and he'd talk about prayer and he'd say, students, the real benefit of prayer is not what you get when you pray, but it's whom you have while you are praying. Prayer is the enjoyment of God's person. It's also where we tap into God's power. You know, so many times we think the people in the Bible who did these amazing things were superheroes, but they weren't. They were people just like you and me. Elijah was one of those amazing men of God, but he was no different than you or me. In fact, when James, the Lord's brother, wrote about him later in his letter in James 5, verse 17, he said, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Unless you think it was just about Elijah, James goes on to say, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Remember those first Christians we've been learning about? After that initial persecution, they gathered together and they started to pray. Remember what happened? The prayer was so powerful, God unleashed his power and the whole room began to shake with the presence of God. That's because they weren't praying to get their will done. They were praying to get God's will done. They realized, God, you put us here to be witnesses. That's what we did. That's why we're being persecuted. Now, God, release more of your power through us so that more people will know who you are. And God said, man, I'm shaking the place for the prayer like that. Prayer is calling upon God to release his will and his power in us to get his will done for his glory. God gives the power for that. Not only that, but it's the place we experience God's peace. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter near the end of his life, from, we believe, a jail cell. Now, my brother-in-law, Dave, has been to the place where he thinks Paul was kept or a jail just like, and I can assure you, his, his description of where Paul was kept is not a place you'd want to be. But Paul is there. He knows he's probably nearing the end of his life, and so he writes a letter to the Philippian church to encourage them, 
And the theme of his letter from jail near the end of his life is joy. <laughs> now, I've got a lot to learn about this. So here's what he writes to them in Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. <laughs> Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul said, you won't even understand where this peace comes from in your situation, but it'll be there when you're praying to him. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God and the God of peace when you are praying will be with you. Not always to change your situation, but to guard your heart and your mind with his peace as you walk with God through your situation. And not just God's person and his power, not just his peace, but God's provision. God's provision. Do you remember what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 145, verse 14? I love this. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. This last week, for a couple of days, I was at Disneyland with my wife, my son, my daughter-in-law, and two of our grandsons. I'm standing in a sea of people. And you know one of the thoughts that came to me when I was standing there? God, you're feeding all these people today. And most of them have no idea who you are. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. That's why James wrote in James 1, verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. See, this is why Paul told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, rejoice always. Pray continually without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. This is one of the areas God's really working on me, this praying without ceasing. What does that look like? Well, it's having times of concerted prayer where you get down and get the blisters on your knees, where you are praying concertedly for periods of time over things that are really important and need to be prayed for. But it's also living every moment in continual connection with God because you see his hand in everything. Thank you, God, for letting me stand in this line that hasn't moved while every other line next to me has already checked out. Because I know, God, there's a purpose in this. 
Thank you, God, that when I have the least amount of time, the faucet breaks off in the morning when I'm trying to get ready for work and water is spewing everywhere and the toilet's overflowing. I know you have a purpose even in this. Now, we laugh at those things, but the bottom line is when you are in constant communication with God, you see his hand in everything. Everything. That's what Paul was talking about. This is a lesson God's been teaching me. Do not quench the spirit. Because you see, in those times when I don't do that, when I get frustrated and angry, and when I don't see God's hand in it, I start quenching the Spirit. It says, don't quench the Spirit, don't limit Him, don't choke off the work of the Holy Spirit of God by failing to pray in those moments. Prayer brings the life-giving flow of the Holy Spirit into our lives with the presence, the power, the peace, and the provision of God. It's no wonder the apostles made the ministry of prayer their priority as we must in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, and in our church. But they also said we will give ourselves to the ministry of the Word. Because the Word of God is the food of the Spirit. No Christian can grow in relationship with God without the Word. It's impossible. And no church can be true to its calling as God's people who do not preach and teach the word. I'm not talking about talking about the word or laying it on the platform when you're talking about everything else. I'm talking about letting the word of God speak and teaching it what God is saying in his word. It's the word of God that brings life to the spirit. The word of God is eternal. Remember Psalm 119, the great psalm on the word of God, verse 89? Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. We're living in a world of shifting everything. God's word never shifts. It's always the same. Peter tapped into that in 1 Peter 1 verse 23 when he said, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Don't get enamored with all the names and the people and the nations and the kingdoms of earth. Those things are passing away. God and his word remain forever. You sink your heart and mind into this. You're holding on to something that has always been and always will be. It's eternal. The word of God is where we meet and know Jesus. Jesus is the living word. The Bible is the written word that reveals the living word. That's why Jesus told a group of people in John 5, verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. People, all 66 books reveal Jesus. I had a lady ask me once, why do you spend so much time talking about the Old Testament? It's so old. I said, because there's so much of Jesus in there you don't want to miss. It's a fascinating study to find Jesus in every book. He's there. And if you love someone, you want to know every nuance of their life. You don't want to miss a thing. Jesus is found there. The Word of God is truth that sets our lives apart to live as His people in the world. That's why at the Last Supper in John 17, in that great prayer that Jesus prayed for the disciples and for you and me, 
He said in John 17, verse 13, I'm coming to you now, speaking to the Father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy, make them as uniquely mine in the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. You and I are sent into the world to be Jesus' presence. If the word of God is not filling your mind, if the word of God is not filling your life, I can assure you that as you go out into the world, the world will not be transformed to Christ. The world will transform the Christian to itself. And that's why when I hear people who say they are Christians adopting worldly values, worldly standards, worldly views of morality and standards of conduct, in a worldview that has nothing to do with God, when I hear Christians talking like that, I can tell them confidently, you are not listening to Jesus. Because if you were, there's no way you could hold the view you just told me. There's no way you could accept that as being truth. You are being conformed by the world to itself because the word of God is not speaking to your mind and your heart. You can know that confidently. The word of God is key to a growing faith. You remember when Paul said in Romans 10, verse 17, consequently faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. If people are not growing in their faith, if churches are not growing in their faith, you already know the issue. You cannot have faith in a God you do not know and you cannot know God apart from his word. You can know about God, but you can't know him. And the word of God and obeying it is the primary way we show love for God. Jesus said at the Last Supper, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. I've shared with this congregation before. I spoke once at a Christian high school. A senior, he identified himself, came up crying, and he said, I love God so much today, I want to give him a hug. I said, you want to give God a hug? I'll tell you how you do it. John 14, 15, you love me, keep my commands. Keep my commands. Because if we are not focused on preaching and teaching the word of God, then we are not doing what God wants. We're only caving in to what people want. When Paul addressed Timothy in what we believe was the last letter of his life, as Timothy led the church at Ephesus, he wrote to him in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is why Paul told Timothy in that same letter, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is why the apostles said it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables. As we'll see in a moment, waiting on tables is a very important ministry. It wasn't that one was more important than the other. But neglecting the prayer and the word would only rob that church of its life. The same way any life, any marriage, any family will be robbed of its life that does not have the word of God in prayer as a priority. Every church must have that priority. And not just a priority on the spiritual life, but for a church to remain a strong kingdom witness, there must be a priority given to the ministry of waiting on tables. Verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. Now I have a weekly regimen that I try to use for maintaining the balance between the spiritual side of my life and the physical side of my life. So every day, and I honestly can't remember a time in the last 15 or 20 years where this hasn't been the case, I get out of bed, I take two steps, I get my Bible and other materials, and I get alone with God for about an hour. Some days it's 45 minutes, some days it's an hour and a half. But it's time for me to listen to God, to hear him speak in the word, and to talk to him. It's where I'm praying for the 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. I don't want to overstate this, but I can't imagine a day where I couldn't have time with Jesus like that. I couldn't imagine a day like that, or even wanting a day like that. Four days a week, I try to balance the physical side by working out. I lift weights, I do calisthenics, and I run. Now, at my age, I'm not doing this to build anything. <laughs> I, I don't have a great physique. I'm not going to be a bodybuilder. Um, that's not my goal. And most of you would say, well, it's obvious you're achieving your goal. Anyway. <laughs> What I'm trying to do is prevent losses, or at least slow them down a little bit, to have the energy to do what God wants me to do. But I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I was out running a while ago, and there was a group of kids on their way to school, and they see me coming up, and they all stopped on the other side of the street. This is what they did. Just like that. 
They had never seen anything working that hard going that slow, ever. <laughs> They're probably figuring out, what is that guy doing exactly? But the truth is, God lives in me. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and so is yours if you're a Christian. So I'm simply trying to take care of what God's given. I can't control everything that happens, but I do what I can. And uh, I try to have the energy God wants me to have to do what he's called me to do. It's that simple. The point is this. I find that if I don't maintain a consistent balance of caring for my spiritual life and my body life, I can't be as effective a witness as God wants me to be for him. I just can't. The same thing is true for the church, the body of Christ. And that's why they knew, they knew that along with a priority on the word of God in prayer, someone had to be focused on the priority of waiting on tables. And so, Luke wrote in verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The term waiting on tables literally is the phrase serving tables. That's what it means. Now the term became synonymous for describing a whole host of ministries that cared for the physical organizational needs of the body, including ministry to the poor. And in this specific case, it was to the Hellenistic Greek widows who were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, some have concluded that this is where the apostles set up a two-board system of church government, elders who oversee the spiritual side of things and deacons who oversee the practical, organizational, physical side of things. And while in concept, this appointment here may have led to those offices. Luke never uses or establishes the word for the office of deacon here. In fact, in verse 1, the word distribution, and in verse 2, the phrase wait on tables are both from the same root of the word to serve, which was the focus. Rather than setting up an office, the apostles were establishing the service ministry priority of caring for the physical needs of the body. Later on, this would develop into two distinct roles defined by qualifications to serve in each as we have in our church today. Elders who oversee the spiritual side of things and deacons who oversee the physical side of things. But here it was addressing the needs of the balance in these priorities of ministry of the prayer and the word and caring for the people. The apostles understood that if the basic needs of the congregation were not handled in a wise, godly, and efficient way, that the witness of the church would be just as adversely affected as if they had neglected prayer and the word. So they had the people choose seven men from among them, known to be full of the spirit and wisdom to oversee this important ministry. From among them, meaning particularly from the Hellenistic side, they chose some people to oversee caring for these widows. That's why it says in verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles were not setting up a system for freeloaders 
who would come and expect the church just to care for every, of all of their needs. That's not what they were setting up. In fact, later on, the Apostle Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 how to handle widows properly, how to care for benevolent needs. Because, you see, the Bible establishes that the church has responsibility to care for those members who are really in need and who cannot care for themselves. They are not to enable those who are lazy, unfaithful, disobedient, dishonest, or slanderous, just to use a few words that the Bible uses. A church caring for the body would help provide for those truly in need and help others to get back on their feet and lead meaningful and productive lives. The church was never have, to never have a role to keep enabling people to live unproductive lives. Some people cannot care for themselves. We are to care for them. Some people could, but they're at a place right now where they can't or won't, and we've got to help them to see that God has a better way. When we do this, we're helping to maintain a healthy body that then becomes a better witness to a lost and dying world. It's no wonder the apostles made waiting on tables a priority of ministry. What was the result? Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Their witness magnified. Timothy Keller and his wife Kathy wrote a book five, six years ago called The Meaning of Marriage. And in that book, Tim Keller was telling about how he moved his family to New York to start Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And he asked his wife Kathy to grant him three years of long hours, and after that he promised things would change. Kathy agreed to Tim's request, but when the three-year mark came and went, Tim said, just a couple more months. Still the months flew by with no change. And although Kathy was incredibly patient and restrained, she did have to get Tim's attention. And so Tim wrote in the book about what happened next. He said, one day I came home from work, it was a nice day outside, and I noticed that the door to our apartment's balcony was open. Just as I was taking off my jacket, I heard a smashing noise coming from the balcony. In another couple of seconds, I heard another one. I walked out on the balcony, and to my surprise, I saw Kathy sitting on the floor, a hammer in one hand, sitting next to a stack of our wedding china, and she's smashing saucers. What are you doing? I asked. She looked up and said, you aren't listening to me. You don't realize that if you keep working these hours, you're going to destroy this family. I don't know how to get through to you. You aren't seeing how serious this is. This is what you're doing. And she brought the hammer down and smashed another one. I sat down trembling. I thought she had snapped. I said, I'm listening. I'm listening. And as we talked, it became clear that she was intense and laser focused, but she was not in a rage or out of control emotionally. She spoke calmly but forcefully. Her arguments were the same as they had been months before, but I realized how deluded I had been. There would never be a convenient time to cut back. I was addicted to the level of productivity I had achieved. She saw me listening for the first time, and we hugged 
And finally, I inquired, when I first came out here, I thought you were having an emotional meltdown. How'd you get control of yourself so fast? With a grin, she answered, it was no meltdown. You see these three saucers I smashed? I nodded. I have no cups for them. <laughs> the cups were broken years ago. I had three saucers to spare, and am I ever glad you finally sat down before I had to break anymore? <laughs> What's the point? Kathy Keller saw her family being put in danger by the lack of right priorities. And she took drastic action to get her husband to join her in realigning those priorities. People, Christians and churches are no different. Our personal lives, our married life, our family lives, they need to be lived out according to God's priorities. There has got to be a spiritual balance of the prayer and word in our lives and in our families and our marriages and our church. And there has to be a balance of caring for the needs. And those priorities easily get out of whack. When the Hellenistic Jews started complaining that their widows were getting overlooked, that was God smashing saucers to get their attention. Is God smashing any saucers in your life? Is God smashing any saucers in your marriage or in your family to get your attention that his priorities are out of whack and need to be realigned? Churches need to live by God's priorities or they will not thrive. They may not even survive as vital witnesses in God's kingdom work. So the apostles said we will give ourselves to the ministry of word and the prayer. We have to do that. But we want some godly people to give themselves to the priority of waiting on tables. There has got to be this balance. That's why we've always sought to maintain that balance here at Golden Hills. And sometimes probably we look like a duck-billed platypus trying to keep those things in balance. Our hope is that over time, God will continue to bless these priorities so that like the early church, we might see the word of God spread. The number of disciples increase rapidly and a great number of people here and amongst the nations coming to believe that Jesus is Lord. Father, thank you for this. It's so easy to get our lives out of whack, to get off on tangents that we don't spend enough time with you or not caring enough for the things around us that matter. People get overlooked. You get overlooked. That's why this situation arose. You were smashing saucers for the early church and they heard you. And they put into place this balance that helped their witness to grow and magnify. May you do that same thing for our lives, our marriages and families, 
and for our church. Help us, God, to be an effective kingdom witness, living by your ministry priorities. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.